Dr. William O. reviewed ASCO datasets in GU cancer, beginning with several papers in renal cell cancer. The CLGB, as well as a European group, have studied in a randomized phase 3 fashion interferon alpha plus or minus bevacizumab in patients with newly diagnosed metastatic renal cell carcinoma. The CLGB study had a primary endpoint of overall survival. We've seen the data presented now for progression-free survival, and as in the original Avorin study, there was a significant difference in progression-free survival. This was the first presentation of the overall survival data at ASCO this year, and what was found was that, in fact, there was no significant difference in survival between the two arms. There was a trend in favor of the group that received interferon plus bevacizumab, but it wasn't statistically significant and did not meet the primary endpoint of their study. What was your take on this? You know, in breast cancer, we've gotten to the point now where we hardly ever even look at survival and metastatic trials because there's so many post-trial events that affect that. Is that what's happening now in renal cell? I think it is. Part of the issue here, of course, is that there are other available tyrosine kinase inhibitors. And in fact, Dr. Rini did try to evaluate this in his study by looking at second-line therapies, including the tyrosine kinase inhibitors like sunitinib and serafinib. And what they found in their post hoc analysis was that it didn't seem to be different. Survival didn't seem to be different whether or not patients receive second-line therapy and depending on the type of therapy they received. So I do think you're right that looking at a survival endpoint in an era where there are multiple multiple salvage therapies available and where the majority of the patients, in fact, did receive second and even third line therapy, that it's very hard to use survival as an endpoint. I want to ask you also about the paper presented by Escudier looking at another presentation of the Evoran study looking at the same combination, and maybe we can sort of put the two together. Yeah, I think these two abstracts and papers really have to be thought of as a pair of studies. They weren't initially planned together, but in fact, the designs were quite similar. One key difference is that the Escudier study, the Avorin study, had a placebo control. So especially for progression endpoints, I think that's particularly important. But for survival, it shouldn't matter. That said, they're both large, well-powered studies, and both of them did not show a statistically significant difference in survival. Like the Rini CLGB study, they did look at whether or not second-line therapies made a difference. They also looked at kind of Western and Eastern Europe because the use of second-line therapies may matter depending on the insurance status of that nation. And none of that seemed to matter in terms of predicting whether there was a subset of patients who would benefit from bevacizumab. Any way to compare indirectly these results to what's seen with, for example, sunitinib? It is an interesting thing. We know from both of these studies that the response rate with the combination is higher than one might expect with either interferon or bevacizumab alone. It was about 25%. You might expect with bevacizumab alone, the response rate would be about 10% with interferon under 10%. So there does seem to be some synergy between the two, but I think many clinicians are really not anxious to go back to using interferon in patients with metastatic renal cell, particularly with available therapies like sunitinib and serafinib. I think the real question is whether or not we have a set standard of care for first-line therapy. This is clearly an available combination in Europe. It's still unclear whether or not bevacizumab plus interferon will be approved by the FDA as a first-line therapy in the United States. But there's no question that it has activity, but we don't have any real comparative data as to whether sequencing this type of regimen compared to an upfront tyrosine kinase inhibitor would be superior. What about survival with TKIs? I think the issue there is that there is evidence that there is a survival benefit. We know that progression-free survival is significantly better, but in a modern era now where we are studying, for example, new 
tyrosine kinase inhibitors. Again, for the same reason, it's going to be very hard for us to show first-line therapies whether TKI will actually have a survival benefit because so many patients will be receiving second- and third-line therapies. What do we know about sunitinib versus interferon in terms of survival? We know that that was the definitive study that, in fact, was performed by Mozart et al. and showed that there was, in fact, a suggestion of a survival benefit. So I'm just kind of curious when you think about bevacizumab. I mean, the Avorin study, I think, showed that you could significantly reduce the dose of interferon without having a big impact on efficacy. Do you see the way forward in terms of Bev alone or Bev interferon or some combination? I think the problem with this combination is that at least American oncologists will generally not have a favorable opinion of interferon. And even with the lower dose interferon, I think the real question is to what extent the combination is both safer and how effective is it in relation to a frontline sunitinib type of approach. I think the real issue is that with regard to quality of life and toxicity, that in fact interferon continues to be a very difficult drug for many patients to tolerate over the long term. So that said, and a head-to-head comparison, for example, with sunitinib, we don't know if the quality of life with a combination like interferon plus bevacizumab would have any significant quality of life advantage or disadvantage compared to long-term sunitinib. What about bevacizumab alone? Clearly, I think that would be less toxic, certainly in terms of side effects than sunitinib, but what do we know about its efficacy? Well, we don't have any phase three data. There is randomized phase two data that was the original Yang publication that showed that the response rate's about 10%. It's clearly more well-tolerated when you give it alone, although we've learned a lot since that time about the toxicity of bevacizumab, certainly in other disease states. I think it's a well-tolerated treatment as a single agent. I think, though, the randomized data really doesn't give it as a single agent. So whether or not it's approvable in this situation and whether oncologists will actually use this as single agent as opposed to the combination, I think remains unclear. In our practice, we don't use this combination as a frontline therapy because I think of the availability of simpler and clearly demonstrated active agents that are oral and therefore easier for many patients to tolerate. What about bevacizumab either alone or with interferon as second-line therapy? I think it's a reasonable consideration. I think clearly there's questions about whether efficacy is different. There are studies that have shown that bevacizumab has activity in the second line after, for example, a TKI. I think that said, there's randomized control data, level 1 evidence that suggests that other drugs, RAD001, for example, or serafinib after interferon or cytokines is approved for those indications. So the real question, I think, is what is the role for, for example, bevacizumab alone? Is there a specific salvage role for it? I can say that in many practices, there are issues about, for example, whether or not it may have a different enough side effect profile that, for example, in a patient who could not tolerate a tyrosine kinase inhibitor or may not tolerate or progress through an mTOR inhibitor, that perhaps consideration of single-agent bevacizumab is reasonable. Let me ask you a general question I should have asked you actually when we started, which is in terms of renal cell and ASCO, overall, was there anything there presented that you think docs in practice, general oncology practice, really need to know about? I think right now we're in a kind of a steady state with renal cancer. There's been... Is that a no? Yeah, that's right. That's right. (laughs) That's what I thought, Uh, to be honest with you. We're doing a lot of shuffling right now with drugs that we know are active 
And we're getting follow-up kind of more mature studies like the Avorin and the CLGB study with the Vastin. I think we're in a situation right now where we're starting to hit the ceiling with regard to what these class of drugs can do. Clearly, patients are subsequently progressing. If we see CRs in any of these studies, they're extremely small percentage of patients. And the truth is that these drugs are kind of temporizing measures, and we've been unable to really effectively break through the barrier of really making the next big step in metastatic renal cell. Yeah, it seemed like ASCO for two, three years there, everyone was coming out with all kinds of new data in renal cell, but this year, a little bit quiet. I think that's right. I think that, you know, maybe with the exception of a new TKI that may have some modest advantages over other drugs, basically the same theme exists. Yeah, we're going to get to that. That was one paper, or actually a couple papers that I did think was interesting, that Pizopinib. But first, I want to ask you about this other paper You know, we had this renal cell cancer think tank yesterday. One of the people who was there I'd never worked with before was Eric Jonash. And he presented this paper that I thought was really cool. I mean, it's not practice, even related to practice, but in terms of the way forward, looking at preoperative therapy in renal cell. Can you talk about what he presented? Yeah, so he did a study of neoadjuvant bevacizumab and erlotinib in patients with metastatic disease who are about to undergo a palliative nephrectomy. And obviously, this is a subset population. This was done at MD Anderson, which represents a high-performance status group of patients. And they, in general, obviously had a good performance status. Now, that said, what Dr. Yonash was able to show was that you could safely give these drugs, and he was able to look at both response systemically and also response in the primary tumor. And in fact, with this combination, half the patients actually had some tumor reduction in their primary tumors, as well as the expected reduction in their tumors metastatically. Although I guess actually what happened was they dropped the erlotinib after a while and A lot of the patients just got BEV. Yeah, I think the question of whether erlotinib really matters in renal cancer is, I think, an open question. I know that the study was designed really prior to the results of a randomized phase two, looking at whether or not erlotinib actually enhances the efficacy of bevacizumab. And based on this study, it appears that it doesn't have any significant clinical efficacy. So whether or not EGFR is an important target in metastatic renal cancer, I think, remains to be seen. As you said, I guess it was the Bukowski paper really said there's no difference between the two. That's right. I think the other interesting thing about this type of study and whether it matters for physicians in practice or not, I think remains to be seen. But it's a way for us to understand patterns of resistance to tyrosine kinase inhibitors. So it turns out that you can give drugs like bevacizumab and TKIs prior to surgery. Obviously, there's a greater and greater amount of evidence that you can do so safely as long as you wait the appropriate number of half-lives before taking the patient to an operation. Yeah, I guess it was just that, you know, oncologists are used to seeing studies in breast cancer and rectal cancer, these translational studies where people, as in this situation, get a therapy and then at surgery they're able to get this specimen and really try to figure out what's going on with the pathways. And that was what I thought was interesting. Like maybe renal cell can start to get in that same kind of ball game. Well he did show in some exploratory work that there was suggestion that a specific pathway that was linked to PI3 kinase was dysregulated at a higher level and that that might predict a mechanism by which these tumors are becoming resistant to anti-VEGF therapy. It's hypothesis generating. I think it makes us think about ways of inducing complete responses in the primary tumors. But it is interesting, too, that generally speaking, it's been well known that if you give a patient with an intact primary drug such as bevacizumab or sunitinib, that their responses in the primaries are different from their responses in distant metastatic disease sites. And that makes you really believe that there's probably greater heterogeneity to these tumors than we have biologically appreciated. 
And, you know, I thought it was great that that kind of translational work could get done. I mean, they had 42 people they were able to do this in. I thought that was pretty cool. Anyhow, getting back to more pragmatics or hopefully soon to become pragmatics, which is you mentioned the paper by Cora Sternberg looking at pizopinib. Can you talk about that? And then there was another study on pizopinib presented too. Yeah, so pizopinib is a new VEGF tyrosine kinase inhibitor. It has a range that's very similar to a drug like sunitinib in that it targets VEGF and PDGFR. And a randomized trial was done in Europe led by Dr. Sternberg of over 400 patients who received pizopinib versus placebo. And the thing about this study, I think, that was probably the thing that jumped out at me the most is that both the response rates were very comparable to the response rates of sunitinib. And the toxicity profile appears to be somewhat more favorable. It's hard to compare studies, obviously, unless you're going head-to-head. And in fact, as many people know, there is a pizopinib versus sunitinib study going on, but we'll have to see whether the toxicity profile holds up. But in this study, it appears that the, for example, rates of toxicities like hand-foot syndrome, rash, fatigue, and asthenia, proteinuria may be less with this drug. And I think given what we've learned over the past few years about the chronic toxicities of very active drugs like sunitinib, the hope would be that if you can parallel the efficacy but decrease the toxicity, that that might be an important advance. What do we know about sort of the cleanliness of pizopinib compared to sunitinib in terms of what targets it hits? I think, you know, right now, if you look at the IC50s of these drugs preclinically, they're fairly comparable. I mean, they both hit VEGF receptor as the primary target. They also both hit PDGF. They also hit CKIT. So whether or not one is going to hit the targets, the clean targets that are more important in renal cell cancer, I guess partly depend on whether we understand what the true targets should be in renal cell carcinoma. I think many of these drugs are clearly VEGF targeting, but some of these other pathways may be more important. And these kind of dirty tyrosine kinase inhibitors may have some activity. They clearly have more activity, for example, than an antibody like bevacizumab, at least when you measure response rate alone. You know, one of the things that came out of this think tank yesterday, and I'm curious about your thoughts, which I really hadn't thought about before and really heard before, was the sentiment of, you know, in the past there have been situations where with chemotherapy, we really believed we needed to get the dose in in order to have optimal benefit. And yesterday I was hearing kind of the same thing about the TKIs in terms of the feeling that the more drug you can get in, quote, so to speak, the greater likelihood of benefit or anti-tumor effect. Do you sort of buy into that paradigm? Well, that's an interesting idea because the whole idea behind targeted therapy, as you know, Neil, is that this wasn't going to be a dose-related benefit. In other words, once you're able to kind of saturate all the receptors that needed to be saturated, that giving more wouldn't matter. I think that that may reflect the fact that these drugs, although uh, very good at blocking the receptor, may be very close to the kind of toxic therapeutic range. In other words, if you were able to saturate all the VEGF receptors with these agents, but toxicity didn't happen for another two or three-fold dose, then you wouldn't have any issue. But I think that one rationale is that if the toxic dose is very close to the therapeutic dose, then clearly dose intensity matters. And since we know that many patients do require breaks or dose reductions, for example, with a drug like sunitinib, in fact, if a patient's saying to you that the best thing about their treatment is they're two weeks off of the treatment, then it is telling you something about the toxic therapeutic ratio. So I think it's ironic that we've come from, let's say, five years ago when people were very excited about the idea of really truly targeted therapy to now where we're getting dirtier and dirtier kind of multi-targeted tyrosine kinase inhibitors and, in fact, having to increase the dose to get the maximal efficacy. These are some principles that we know for many years were principles of cytotoxic chemotherapy. 
That said, I think we're still in the right range in that as we think of how these drugs work, and we're going to talk about it with another drug in a minute, it strikes me that in oncology, it won't be an infinite number of pathways. In other words, once you figure out the two or three or four key pathways, if you develop drugs that clearly can block each of those pathways, you have to block the pathways of resistance. And that's why studies like the Yonash study, where you can try to learn by looking at the tissue how these cancers are growing in spite of blocking, let's say, VEGF receptor, that we're going to learn better about how to combine these drugs. We definitely hear a lot from community-based docs about the trials and tribulations of sunitinib and serafinib, for that matter, and the challenges of the side effects there. And I just wondered whether or not if an agent came along, pizopinib, for example, that was significantly less toxic. I mean, obviously, the patient would feel better, but I wonder whether, you quote, getting more drug in, maybe would you see greater anti-tumor effect? I think it's a good question, and I think it will always depend on the individual characteristics of that drug. So if, in fact, you need a lower dose to bind to the receptor and inactivate it, for example, and if the difference between the dose that induces toxicity and the dose that induces efficacy is if that ratio is significantly different for a new agent, you're going to find that that's the agent that clinicians will go towards. So it's not that different than even blood pressure medicines or diabetes medicines or any of the other kind of class of drugs where we start to figure out, you know, even two drugs in the same class may have a very different toxicity profile because of their chemical characteristics or metabolism. Yeah, I was pointing out that actually when tamoxifen came on board for breast cancer, it wasn't because it was more efficacious than other hormonal therapy, which is mainly, I think, high-dose estrogen that it was compared to, but that it was less toxic. It was actually equally effective. What about this other paper on pizopinib by Hawkins et al.? Well, I think what they presented was, besides the randomized blinded portion of the study, they also reported the open-label extension study for the patients who had originally been assigned to placebo. And they basically showed the same response rate and very similar toxicity profile. I think whenever we see these types of follow-up open-label extension studies, it allows us to at least know that the patients who are getting delayed therapy don't have a, for example, significantly more difficult time tolerating the drug or don't have a much lower rate of response. So whenever I look at two studies kind of parallel where one is the extension, you know, you take it at face value. Not every patient who was randomized to placebo received the extension component. I think it was about a little over a half. So the patients who are sicker fall off or may go on to other treatment and, you know, you get generally a better population. But you want to know that when that population, the initially placebo-treated patients, receive the open-label pizopinib, that they get a similar sense of efficacy and toxicity. And that's what this abstract showed. The last renal paper I want to ask you about is by Krug looking at RAD001 or Everlimus that just became available plus sunitinib. Yeah, so I think the standard approach that one would expect with oncologists is that if two drugs and two pathways may work, then you may as well see how well you can put them together. And this is a good example of that. I think clearly mTOR inhibition is active in metastatic renal cell carcinoma, as is VEGF receptor inhibition. This is a phase one study where they did dose escalation. It appears to be relatively well tolerated, which is an important factor, you know, when this concept of horizontal VEGF inhibition was attempted 
patented drugs like sunitinib combined with drugs like bevacizumab really turned out to be intolerably toxic. Surprisingly so, I, I think. I think surprising in some ways, but also, you know, because they're along the same pathway. We still don't, for example, understand the true mechanism of hypertension or proteinuria in these patients. But yes, I think people certainly didn't expect the level of toxicity that we saw with those combinations. So this is kind of a natural next step is to obviously look at the VEGF inhibitors and the mTOR inhibitors and see if we can develop appropriate dosing that will allow us to go to a head-to-head comparison frontline, for example, with sunitinib versus sunitinib plus RAD001. So anything they saw that you think was useful other than safety? No, I think the problem with looking at a phase one trial is both the issues of dose and also the issues of efficacy. You know, we know that sunitinib, even at some of the early doses that they use, like 37 and a half, is active. So they saw responses at most of the dose levels where the sunitinib dose was adequate. So I think it's hard to make much out of this except to really look at the safety, which is obviously what a phase one study is. I think the fact that they were able to dose escalate and if they're able to find the appropriate phase two dose, you probably will see a larger phase two study of this combination in a multicenter study. And at that point, if it looks like you're seeing a significant delay in progression and or response rate, it may go into a randomized phase three study. What were your thoughts about the paper from Han et al. from the Hoosier Oncology Group looking at cyst, gem, and BEV with urothelial cancer? Yeah, this was primarily bladder cancer, although they allowed upper tract disease as well. So this was a multicenter Hoosier Oncology Group study, and obviously GEM-CYST being the standard of care for first-line metastatic urothelial cancer, the obvious next combination is to see whether or not bevacizumab may enhance response. One of the interesting things about this paper was that, in fact, there was quite a lot of toxicity thrombosis and pulmonary embolism seen when they first started the study. And part of this may have been related to the gemcitabine dose. They started at a gemcitabine dose of 1,250 milligrams per meter squared. So they actually, in the middle of the study, decreased the dose to 1,000 milligrams per meter squared, which is probably more what most oncologists would be using for their metastatic urothelial cancer patients. And after they decreased the dose to 1,000, they saw a lot less thrombosis. It was interesting because that wouldn't have been my thought to decrease the dose of gemcitabine. It would have been to worry about whether bevacizumab is, in fact, what's causing the thrombosis. But when they did decrease the dose, for whatever reason, they saw much less thrombosis pulmonary emboli. So this is important because the CLGB is about to undergo a phase three study of GEMSYS versus GEMSYS bevacizumab with a survival endpoint in transitional cell or urothelial cell carcinoma. So I think urothelial or bladder cancers have been one of the real tough nuts to crack in GU cancers. There's been really no effective therapy beyond gemcitabine and platinum in the last decade. Vinflunine, which is a new vinca alkaloid, may wind up being approved in Europe on the basis of fairly modest data. So any data that suggests that maybe a new combination might have activity in a phase three trial is welcome. The problem was that the response rate and the time to progression that they saw in this study, again, a phase two study, was not particularly encouraging. The patients lived a little bit longer than they might have expected, about a year and a half. But I think the real concern is that bladder cancer patients may experience more toxicity. So we'll have to wait and see what the phase three study shows. Let's run through a bunch of prostate cancer papers. What about the paper that you presented looking at neoadjuvant chemotherapy with docetaxel and bevacizumab? So along the lines of our prior discussion with renal cancer and bladder cancer, in prostate cancer, there's an ongoing CLGB trial looking at docetaxel with or without bevacizumab in hormone refractory or castration-resistant prostate cancer. Our interest in doing a neoadjuvant study with the combination of docetaxel and bevacizumab really related to whether or not we could deliver chemotherapy better to the primary tumor. 
The other thing we've always been interested in is looking at markers of resistance, similar to the discussion with the renal cancer study of whether or not we can take these primary specimens after chemotherapy and determine why they continue to grow or why we haven't eradicated them. So we treated in our study 42 patients, a multi-center study, with up to six cycles of docetaxel and bevacizumab. We left bevacizumab off of the last cycle so that, in fact, patients could have less risk of wound dehiscence or other surgical complications. And what we presented at this meeting was really primarily response data. We used endorectal MRI response, and we found that about 39% of the patients had had a major MRI response. That's in contrast to about 20% of patients who had responded in a prior study of docetaxel alone. So this is early yet. We still haven't done the pathology reporting yet, but it suggests that we can start to look at endpoints and maybe start to think about ways of measuring proportional efficacy. Can we increase, for example, the degree to which these tumors shrink in these patients by adding additional therapies like bevacizumab and perhaps newer targeted therapies? I guess the other thing is that in metastatic disease, we're waiting on a study looking at docetaxel alone or with bevacizumab. Do we know where that stands in terms of maybe reporting? I mean, there are a whole bunch of tumors, obviously, right now where we're using chemo and Bev. That study, it's a CLGB trial, finished accrual over a year ago, and it's expected that the survival endpoint will be met sometime in 2010. So that would be my expectation, given the median survival of men with metastatic CRPC. So we hope to know within a year or so whether or not bevacizumab has a role in metastatic CRPC. Any predictions? It's tough to predict, as you know, because you're always wrong half the time, or maybe more. That said, you know, I think that the rationale is very strong, and we know that this is what led to the approval of bevacizumab in other solid tumors, but it hasn't been a slam dunk in every cancer. So I think it has a 50-50 chance of being a positive study. What about this paper looking at abiridrone? This data has been presented in several meetings now. These are updated, looking at abiraterone acetate. Abiraterone is generating a lot of excitement. It's a lyase inhibitor that blocks the enzymes that stimulate the growth of adrenal steroids to testosterone. It turns out what's most interesting about castration-resistant prostate cancer is that This is not just happening in the adrenal gland, but it may be happening in the prostate tumors themselves. In other words, they may be modifying or altering the genetic machinery to actually upregulate these enzymes. So one way in which drugs like abiraterone may be working is that they are actually shutting down production of adrenal androgens at the tumors themselves. So this study showed that after chemotherapy, about half the patients have a 50% or greater PSA response. Very encouraging time to progression. And this has already led to a phase three study, which is already accrued. So like with the bevacizumab study, we're going to see probably in the next year or year and a half, the final results of an abiraterone versus placebo study post-taxotere chemotherapy with the survival endpoint. If that's positive, then abiraterone will have a role in the management of metastatic CRPC. Again, any predictions? I'd predict that this drug is going to be approved. I think that the level of activity that you're seeing in the phase two studies is high enough that it clearly benefits patients and it's clearly having sufficient duration of benefit that it could lead to a survival benefit. But that's obviously still a guess. What about the paper that came out of Memorial looking at docetaxel and samarium? So Michael Morris has shown that you can safely combine radiopharmaceuticals with chemotherapy. He presented this data before as a phase one study, and this is kind of a follow-up showing the phase two expansion cohort. 
you know, it makes a lot of sense in prostate cancer because of its predisposition to bone that you should be able to combine radiopharmaceuticals with other cytotoxic drugs and perhaps have a better anti-tumor effect. Nobody's really ever shown this before, and my experience with samarium alone as an anti-tumor agent in prostate cancer is pretty modest. So I think that said, it's important because of the cross-reactive toxicity of these agents because they both affect the bone marrow that you don't want to permanently wipe out these patients' bone marrows. That said, this study really shows that you can safely combine these agents and that, in fact, there were responses seen at really every dose level and in patients who previously were treated with docetaxel and even some patients who were considered to be refractory to docetaxel. I think the real question long-term for radiopharmaceuticals is even if you see responses, to what extent would this strategy be important, let's say up front or a second-line therapy? And it's not samarium that I would say is the most interesting agent because, again, my personal experience with it is that it has has a modest amount of palliative benefit and may have some additive effect with docetaxel, although even in these studies, it's not a dramatic additional benefit. What's most interesting, I think, is maybe some of the newer radiopharmaceuticals. And in fact, there's this very interesting agent that's been published, Radium, in an article from The Lancet. Radium is an alpha emitter and actually has quite a lot of more energy, but with a very narrow radius. And I'm not a radiation specialist, but in fact, that would be what you'd ideally want from a bone-localizing radiopharmaceutical. You'd want high energy, narrow radius, and in fact, you may be seeing more radiopharmaceuticals in the future, either alone or in combination with chemotherapy.